0: If you're trying to do an ethics but you have no notion of justice, behind it, you might just have a bad notion of justice.
1: Socially, politically, ethically, personally, how do you shift? Yo! Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast a week of bullshit with impunity. I am a rejuvenated Austin Hayden-Smith.
0: And I'm Troy Palladori, and I want to say we should change it so we are still two dudes. <laughs> yeah. Quantification still.
1: We were almost one dude <laughs> from Southern California for a little bit there. Oh, uh, gosh. Yes, it's good to be back. It's good to be back. Sorry to people... Who out there are used to a weekly episode, but uh, I had a little medical emergency that struck me randomly on a Friday morning about almost a month ago now. So I had to go to the hospital and take care of a collapsed lung, and then it wasn't repairing itself, and it's called a tension pneumothorax, so it's putting pressure on my heart. So they rush you in immediately and do all this shit, and we'll talk about this more in a bonus episode uh, that we're actually going to release in conjunction with this episode, but then I ended up having to have lung surgery where they cut out a couple pieces of my lung, stapled me back up and do something called a pleuridesis where they basically scuff up your lung, slap some talc on there, creates a chemical reaction with this viscous liquid in your pleural space, and it kind of creates like a cement bond and attaches your lung back to your chest lining, so it can't happen again. And then, like I said, they had to cut out two problem areas uh, on my lung Um, They have these things called blebs on your lungs that can form that when they burst, they create a leak in that pleural space region that disrupts the pressure and basically makes your lung collapse. And so uh, they cut out a couple of bad areas um, and then staple them back up. It's called a wedge resection. And then they send you out the door a week after they perform the surgery and then you recover. So I'm back, though.
0: But that's just a tease. We're going to save the rest for a bonus set.
1: That's right. A really sexy
0: description. After dark, sexy description of surgery and recovery
1: and the uh hallucinogenic spiritual journey that i went on when they gave me ketamine when i first went into the emergency room and they performed the initial procedure which is called a chest drain and they gave me ketamine and just for people listening i have seen god and she's beautiful
0: i've been waiting with bated breath to hear about your k-hole story (laughs) so we'll get into that I know. You're going to hear know. me eating popcorn during the bonus set if you listen. <laughs> it's going
1: to be like that Michael Jackson the Michael Jackson GIF where he's sitting there eating popcorn in the movie theater. <laughs> that meme like ah, I'm ready. Um okay, cool man. Well, what do we have to do first? I guess we give a shout out to our sponsors over at Movie, yeah? yeah? We yeah. haven't uh, done an episode for a while, so we want to make sure that we give credit to where credit is due because they really help it. Help us be able to make this podcast possible and I've said this before, and and I'm not bullshitting. Like, I reached out to Mubi because I use Mubi. I love Mubi. It is an online streaming streaming service. It's M-U-B-I, by the way. It's an online streaming service that is very unique. They specialize in indie darlings, art house favorites, regional specialties, classics of cinema from all around the world, and they have a 30-day rotation that uh, a film will come in and lives for 30 days, and then it falls off at the end, which means that 30 films for 30 days, a new film every day, and then that means a film drops off after a 30-day rotation, so there's a fresh rotation, then it also creates a nice little sense of urgency and... Um, And It's not too many films that you can't manage either. It's not like a thousand films and you're like, oh no, a film's going to drop off and I don't have time to see the 10 that I want to see this month. You generally will be able to see either ones that you've wanted to see or new films that kind of just come out of nowhere that take your interest within the allotted framework and the the kind of situations of exigency that they create for you. So it's absolutely fantastic, and they're offering a 30-day free extended trial or extended free trial for Owls at Dawn listeners. So if you go to Mubi.com slash Owls at Dawn, you can take advantage of that. That's M-U-B-I.com slash Owls at Dawn, and you can get your free trial. And Troy's going to talk to you about a film that is in his library, because they do have different regional libraries, um, depending on where you are in the world, but one that has caught his attention that he wants to tell you about.
0: Yeah, so the one in my library that I was uh, immediately struck by is a movie called Start Up um, mm. by uh, David McKenzie. I believe he's a British director, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a kind of classic prison drama um, starring uh, Jack O'Connell, who I know you're a fan of, from, uh, what's the show? Skins. Yeah, I never watched that. What was his deal in Skins?
1: Well, so because you know how they have a they have a revolving rotation of their casts uh, in Skins, and I believe it was season three, four, five that he was in, and it's also Effie. If um, oh, what is the actor's name? I can see her face. Um, she was in like Maze Runner, and she was in. I, I think it was the remake of was it Pride and Prejudice? Oh gosh, I can't remember. Um, but uh. Uh, uh, I can see her face. I think she might have like an interesting Englishy name, like with like a Celtic background or some shit. Anyway. But she was um, in skins with Jack O'Connell. She's in skins. Yeah. And so it was Jack O'Connell, it was this, the character Effie, and then uh, Freddie. And there's, it's this trio. They were like the main three. And, and I don't want to say too much without ruining what happens, but the way that the season or the the way that their stint culminates is just so fantastic. And that's when I kind of got my man crush on Jack O'Connell. So when I found out that Startup, that he was going to be in Startup, I was like, yes, I love this guy. And so I was impressed.
0: Yeah. It's a commanding performance, too. Um, he plays like a, like a teenage kind of thug who is put in prison and tries to kind of, uh, dominate and become, um, you know, sort of a, a leader in prison, someone who can't be taken advantage of. And he ends up finding out that his his father, his long lost father, played by uh, Ben Mendelssohn, who's fantastic, or was fantastic. Whom I also, fantastic, loved. fantastic before a- he started being in like superhero movies, at least. Yes,
1: yes. Um, He's amazing in everything he does,
0: except for the superhero movies.
1: <laughs> I mean, I'll give him a pass.
0: Yeah, that's kind of like uh, going to the park and shooting hoops. Like, you don't have to play fundamental basketball when you're at the park, right? <laughs>
1: He's he's playing a horse, he's just doing trick shots. <laughs> yeah,
0: he's doing trick shots, exactly. So it's cool if you like, you know, shoot threes from behind the hoop and, and stuff like that's that. Right. It's like, yeah, what the fuck? Who cares? <laughs> yeah, you can be this high with the park, you don't have to take it seriously. That's
1: right. This is not that kind of performance by then. <laughs> no, myself. not at all. This is
0: yeah. It's I don't want to say too much about it because uh um it's it's better just to watch, but it's a it's a quite the commanding emotional uh, performances by the two of them. Um and uh, definitely a movie worth watching. It's not one of those three-hour-long prison dramas that just beats you into a pulp and, and tells you that everything is wrong with the world and everything sucks and you should die. Um, mm. Although it is it is definitely dark. So um, absolutely recommend David McKenzie's Startup.
1: Sick. Sounds good. So yeah, so go check out your regional library, see what you've got available, um, and then sign up for your free trial, movie.com slash owls at dawn.
0: Yeah. And we also want to say... If you want to support us in more tangible ways, you can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash dawn. We have several tiers of support from uh, which you can contribute towards and get extra goodies like the bonus app where Austin's going to describe his incredible, uh, you know, transcendental K-hole experience, which by itself is probably worth the price of admission. Then you also get access to stuff like the monthly newsletter, which we release every month, with extra sticky leaves, extra shitty minutes, extra bullshit that you definitely want more of. Uh, as well as the ability to contribute towards choosing our next patron-sponsored episode.
1: That is right, and I know I said this last month... But I hope you guys will give me a little bit of a pass just because I was laid up a little bit and I am so behind on so many things. But the newsletter for September is just a little bit behind, as was the newsletter for August, which came out, I think, like the first week of September. Um, So, the September newsletter will be coming out uh, in the next couple of days. So, it might be released by the time this episode is out, but it will definitely be within a couple of days after the release of this episode. So, Check your inboxes for that. And then, of course, if you want access to that, go to patreon.com slash Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sweet! Well, let's get into the shitty minute. This is the segment of the episode where one of us gets to rant and rave about whatever it is that is chapping our hide. So, Troy, it's been a while. You're in a new city. Things are different. Is there
0: anything that you want to complain about? there's definitely someone I want to complain about, but it's not about where I live or anything like that, man. Okay. I always go more abstract, man. Nothing concrete in this shitty minute. Uh, True. Um, So I know you've been laid up, but did you have a chance to watch the kind of now infamous Chappelle stand-up special on Netflix?
1: I watched the first 10 minutes.
0: Why? Explain.
1: (laughs) I, after, I mean, it was no principled reason. I... Uh, I mean, maybe. Maybe I'm just tired of the culture war. And I feel like Bill Burr just released a comedy special where he's complaining about the culture war. Chappelle did. Aziz Ansari did his one. Everybody on Twitter is constantly doing it on either side of the aisle. And I'm kind of just exhausted by it. And and th- and I, I swear, guys, I'm not just going to talk about my surgery as though it's like the only thing that matters and it has somehow like removed the scales from my eyes and like I'm going to change my name and become a fucking sherpa but, but I it have has been, and you will But it has yeah <laughs> and I have been just kind of I have had no patience for that kind of thing and so I watched the first 10 minutes and I chuckled a couple of times I I did the hmm a couple of times and then i also did a couple of like mental eye rolls a few times but that wasn't really it it was more just that i didn't didn't have the mental space for anything intellectual or provocative or uh stimulating beyond just simple pleasures uh, while i was recovering if that makes sense
0: yeah yeah i totally get that and you know i think that my shitty minutes kind of almost like a, a transcendental argument in virtue of that phenomenon um mm. in the sense that You know, I watched the Chappelle uh, stand up, and he's one of the greatest comedians of our generation, if not probably the greatest comedian of our generation. So, anytime he's got a new special up, you definitely want to, like, you know, um, get onto it right away. And it's for sure going to be into the social media sphere. Not that I give two shits about that, but it's a reason Mm -hmm. to sort of watch it before you hear everything about it. Right. Um, And it just, I think there's a lot of uproar about it from the left that there's some points that I think are accurate and some that are. Totally inaccurate, or basically just looking for you know the outrage machine. Um, but I don't really give a shit. And really, what bugs me about the whole thing is just the idea that we have to take uh, comedians seriously now. Yes, um, is th- that whole that's basically just an assumed premise in the way we treat anytime um, one of the big comedians comes out with a new special. I watched a member Aziz, Aziz Ansari's uh, special from earlier this year, and it was awful. I thought it was just terrible. Um, I don't think I finished it because I was just thought it was so bad. And I love, I usually like Aziz Lanzari a lot. Um, especially when he's doing like writing and stuff, maybe not stand up, but uh, yeah, the, we sort of have to take everything so seriously now with um, the big comedians that we end up. And I don't, I don't want to say that comedians can't err for this reason. Of course they can, but we end up treating the medium as if it's basically a, a speech, right? Like an expressive speech. Mm. And, in one case, that does treat the comedian unfairly because that's not what they're actually trying to do. Um, but it's also just sucks. Like, <laughs> Who would want to listen to like, some rando who's probably not all that educated usually just speak for an hour and a half and just opine on random subjects without any real through line oftentimes? That's yeah. just not interesting. Why would you do that? Hmm. Um, and, and so there's something about comedians that they, they seem to have gained a new sort of... Um, social position in the last i don't know 10 or 20 years where they're almost like the go-to public intellectuals so when you have a new phenomenon that exists in the culture and something that's a little bit ambiguous um such as like social norms you have to go to the big comedians to get their say because they're the ones who are going to opine on it and have the expertise on it right um they're kind of like the sophists of the day in that sense and that's just like if your society exists in that way, and not necessarily by choice, but just sort of that's how it ended up being the case, something is re- like desperately wrong with the like intellectual sphere of that society, <laughs> if the comedians are the go-to public intellectuals. Um, and I don't want to do like a long diatribe about why that's the case because I'm not entirely sure. It's got something to do with the fact that no one trusts academics and actual intellectuals anymore. Mm. Um, and also something to do with like the isolation of uh, academics as well, I think. Um, but even beyond that, and um, the valorization
1: of celebrity culture.
0: Yeah, d- definitely, that's part of it. Um, although I, I don't think that people take what Kanye says as seriously as they take what a comedian says, um, or at least in mm. the same way. Like, but that, that, that's that's neither here nor there. There's something special about comedians where they kind of occupy both the celebrity aspect and the you know quote unquote intellectual aspect, and that's just like sad and wrong and terrible, and nothing good will come of that, and it will ruin comedy. Also, Olympic comedy no longer funny, no longer challenging um, or interesting in any important way. So I just want to say, like, we got to stop valorizing comedians in the first place, whether or not what they sometimes do is wrong or right or what the norms are regarding um, sort of, uh, you know, making people angry and using terminology that goes against social norms or whatever. um, We got to stop treating it so seriously. It's not that serious.
1: You know, it's so funny, you you just said something that triggered a thought. There's a great irony in all of this. The comedians are being thrust uh, into the limelight and placed on a pedestal, and almost like there's a demand imposed upon them that we hear them speak. But simultaneously... When they speak, they're speaking about the pressures that are imposed upon them by being thrust into the limelight based on what they perceive as being like PC culture or how like they're not allowed to attack on free speech or something like that. So the great irony here is right in that tension, right? That tension point where they're getting the thing that maybe allows them to have the platform so that they can continue to speak, but then they're complaining that they can't say what they want to say. And so there is this weird tension going on there.
0: But there's no sense in which they're really... Uh, grasping or diagnosing the underlying problem, which is that they shouldn't have this platform in the first place, right?
1: Exactly. Um, something
0: is desperately sick and wrong with society, such that they're given this platform with this level of importance. And maybe that's just a blind spot because they wouldn't be making as much money <laughs> if that were the case. Right? I don't know. Uh, but I feel like you know there was some sense in which Chris Rock and George Carlin and others you know, um, had an important role to play, but it wasn't quite as as central. Um, as comedians play now. And and maybe Chris Rock and George Carlin are partly responsible um, for everyone needing to be just like them now.
1: You know, Um, so I, I have a theory and I don't know how far I want to take this, but I've been thinking about this a lot lately. You know, there are a lot of people that bemoan the sort of like fall of the public intellectual or uh, the, the kind of public display of respect towards Intellectually elites or something like that and that it's you know that we're like amusing ourselves to death in postman's term and that we've turned towards like a sort of vulgarized celebrity superficial consumerist culture whatever blah 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 Um But what I wonder is is like there's something where I think comedy and philosophy actually are, are interesting bedfellows like not that they're the same thing But I wonder if like historically Comedians Like, yeah, they had a relative universal appeal, like somebody like an Eddie Murphy whose specials were huge, right? Um, Or, like, somebody like a Richard Pryor. But nevertheless, there was still the safety of the comedy room that wasn't recorded, where you could work out material, say stupid shit, say really crazy. Like, you would go see a comedian in the 90s, 80s, 70s, and you would be like, what the fuck? Part of it was (laughs) that you're seeing something that was taboo, right? Right. I mean, that's why comedians historically have been jailed, ostracized. Um, You see Sam Kinison screaming on late night television. That's like this great scandal because that's coming out of the comedy room into the universal almost, right? Into the public. But there's something safe and radical and interesting about the taboo of the comedy room. Similar with, I think, philosophy. When philosophy tries to be too public, when it tries to come out of not the classroom or the ivory tower. I don't mean that but out of the space where it's allowed to just completely confront and experiment uh, and and be taboo and exist on the margins and as a fringe discourse or as a fringe place in the world. Um, I think there's something kind of interesting going on to think about the difference between those two because when it when it comes out of that, it almost kind of corrupts what it's able to do. And I'm not even sure that philosophy, at least some types of philosophy, I'm not sure that if that philosophy in terms of like questioning and thinking and examining and critical reasoning, but I mean more like certain like radical philosophical orientations that it, they almost belong on the margins or the fringes. They can't be part of the status quo. They're like essentially organized contra the status quo.
0: Yeah, I think that's certainly true. And I think that you know my, my point is not to say something like we need to bring back public intellectuals in the same way they existed before, but that um, there's a sense in which sort of moral authorities have disappeared. Um, and large yeah. part because I think people just don't have anyone they can are willing to invest that authority in from the usual spaces and comedians have almost taken up some of that space, not all of it, because that general distrust is probably like 80% still there. Um, but we, we need to diagnose that problem. And the answer is probably not just go back to blindly trusting moral authorities, but it's, it's gotta be something other than invest part of it in comedians. Cause that's definitely not better and probably worse <laughs> than the opposite. Maybe even worse than just having no uh, public moral authorities at all.
1: And it is stupid when, like Bill Burr or Dave Chappelle or Aziz Ansari, because they're talking about these culture war issues, are somehow viewed as being radical. Like, oh, like they're standing up for free speech. Like these crazy radical. Like the fact that that is even considered a scandal to me is so odd.
0: Right? Because so stupid. Like being booed is being censored. (laughs) (laughs) Right.
1: (laughs) Right. And then a a thousand YouTube videos about so-and-so destroys the SJWs or (laughs) so-and-so destroys the conservatives. It's like, no, no, no one's destroying anybody. They're all in the center. Okay. The fucking extreme center. They're all just circling around each other. Very safe. (laughs) Oh God. Yeah. 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 Did you watch the whole special? Yeah, I did. And I mean, like I only watched 10 minutes of it and then I watched, I read some of the outrage, but like I said, I didn't have too much patience for that madness. Does it just, does he get like, does he say anything like truly provocative and crazy and wild or is it him kind of like just kind of touching these sensitive subjects? And then you're kind of like, oh, I get it already. Nothing he's saying isn't something I haven't seen engaged with already on Twitter.
0: No, I mean, it's nothing truly new and it's it's Chappelle. So he's got his own, his own style, which I think is much much deeper and more nuanced than, than the usual comedians, especially ones that address, you know, uh, kind of culture war issues. And some of the, some of the, the jokes kind of fell flat and I think we're kind of mean, but you know, I don't really give a shit. Um, but then some of the jokes I thought were actually pretty funny. He had a whole series where he talked about, which was, I think probably the most provocative part of the whole thing where he talked about, um, uh, LGBTQ people and the different resentments they might have, uh, intra, intra group, like, mm amongst each other. And I thought that that was actually pretty funny because it kind of came from a place of care, like an assumption that, well, these people are all in this like weird conglomeration together, which they don't necessarily have to be in. And there are some people who don't like the others in that group for various reasons, Mm -hmm. uh, which is true. And sometimes we kind of gloss over that when we just combine them all in one acronym. Um, And he, I think that kind of came from a place of you know, telling jokes and making fun, but also from a place of this is only funny if you think these people are kind of right. Um, mm. It's kind of getting at sort of the weird uh, contradictions within a basically correct position. And so that was, I think, the part where he it actually was pretty good and pretty interesting. Other parts, not so much, but, you know, that's that's comedy. Just kind of it's one, it's one guy who's actually really good at comedy, probably the best one that there is um, in America during this generation. Just have a listen to what he has to say, and some of it's not going to be good because he's not a genius, and other parts of it might be kind of interesting. And then, you know, <laughs> let it go. That's kind of how I think we treated like Chris Rock and George Carlin, Richard Pryor. So treat the new the new guys the same too.
1: Can't have that, man. Not today. And if not they today. say the word
0: triggered, just turn it off. That's, that's a pretty good <laughs> uh, key to live by too. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, you kind of foreshadowed just a minute ago because you said his, uh, his position kind of came from a place of care. So, segue?
0: Yeah, it's a good one. So, on the main segment today, we're going to be talking about um, a pretty infamous essay in uh, moral development and moral psychology and ethics um, called Moral Orientation and Moral Development by Carol Gilligan from 1987. And this is basically considered one of the foundational um, papers in what's called care ethics. And this is not uh, a domain that I'm an expert in. So I don't want to speak too much at length about the history of this, this whole orientation. But basically from what I gather um, care ethics is a um, sort of orthogonal to feminist theory and ethics um, kind of detailing out how, Uh, Moral philosophy in America during the mid 20th century was very focused on issues of justice, um, not just politically, but also just in terms of ethics uh, proper. And that there's a sort of a huge branch of moral psychology and moral development that that whole orientation leaves out. Um, And that is the issues of care and dependence and attachments and relationship. And so Carol Gilligan wrote this paper. I think she trained under um, maybe it was uh, Kohlberg, one of the famous yeah, was. Of the moral, moral moral development theorists. Yeah, and, it was, him and, it. and saw the influence of um, this whole orientation. I don't know if we need to go, go too much into that into that area because it's not something I know a whole lot about, or I'm terribly interested in. But
1: hmm.
0: um, she wrote this paper as a way of of saying that you can look at the data regarding moral development um, in men and women and see that. There's actually some interesting differences between men and women, which is often glossed over since a lot of kind of mid-century moral development uh, experiments were done solely on men and then extrapolated universally from there. Funny how that ends up um, like twisting the results, right?
1: Great, right. Yeah. Well, so I don't want to like, I don't, again, this, I'm not an expert in this either um, in terms of like the history and shit like that. So, but I do know that she was working as a research assistant with Kohlberg. And so the one thing I did want to say is, so his theory of moral development has six stages and its highest stage. And I'm going to read a quote here um, that at its highest stage, an individual develops a deeply held self-defined set of moral principles that one wishes apply equally to all. So kind of like universal, categorical, imperative kind of thing. You reach that highest stage. Yeah, you see Kohlberg, the, the
0: Kantian, the Kantian uh, lineage there.
1: Yes. Which was, which so was then,
0: kind of new for the mid-century. That was kind of responding to the more expressivist, emotivist tendency of previous moral psychology, where everything was really about um, feelings and emotions, and not necessarily about sort of these rational or cognitive issues.
1: And what Kohlberg does is he ties that to a type of stage of almost biological and lived development and that you can reach this sixth stage. And he says that not everyone will reach the sixth stage of moral development though. And then what he tended to find out in his empirical evidence is that women happened to tend or tended to score at lower stages of moral development. That they didn't reach that sixth stage. So the implication was is that women under this rubric of reaching that sixth stage were somehow inherently deficient. So Gilligan says, okay, there's something wrong about this based on one, his samples, um, to the orientation, the approach, maybe you're front loading everything by saying you have to fit yourselves within this six fold path. And so that was kind of one of the things that I think she used as a catalyst for her, um, early research in like the seven, late seventies into the eighties and stuff like that. So I just wanted to say that really quickly as well.
0: Yeah. And she's got a lot of work um, on this, which is, I think really well balanced. Um, Gilligan is not like a sort of like the, the stereotype from um, like the right of a feminist who's basically destroy all men's work and everything to do with with masculinity and then replace it with, the, with the, like the feminine monarch, right? like the Amazonian woman. Mm. Um, there's, no, there's no sense of that here. It's extremely balanced and in fact, doesn't really consider anything in the sort of what she calls the justice perspective to necessarily be wrong. Um, or really challenges um, Kohlberg's sort of linear development those stages as being necessarily wrong but just very much incomplete um really halfway incomplete there's kind of
1: and i'm going to use this word lightly and tell me if i'm wrong there's kind of like a positional relativism right And, and a perspectivalism which she clearly speaks about perspective here where it's when you are viewing the world from within your perspective it leads to different forms of rationality about ethics And that there is a kind of male perspective that leads to a type of uh, male-inflected justice or a male-inflected ethic, which is based on the ethics of justice. And then simultaneously, or I guess contra to that, there's a female experience in the world which tends towards not an absolute, but tends towards this other element that is a little bit neglected uh, in the opposite position, and it tends towards an ethics of care. And it seems that there's almost, there's kind of um, a positional relativism, but then there's also kind of an essentialism here, which is an interesting juxtaposition or set of things to think through. Am I missing something, you think, or is that about right?
0: No, I think you're right. Just really quick, I wanna say, uh, she's pretty careful not to associate these things with male and female, Um, right? Uh, man and woman? Or even man and woman. It's 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 the sense that men tend to be more oriented towards the justice perspective, and women tend to be actually split between the care and the justice perspective. Um, so it's just that women are women tend to use the care perspective more than men do. Is really how she puts it. Um, it's certainly so. It's not like a
1: biological. Essentiality.
0: She's really clear about making sure it's definitely not a biological essentiality. Um, I think she explicitly states that somewhere in the paper.
1: It's like a developmental tendency.
0: Yeah, so I think it leaves open the idea, or maybe even strongly implies the idea that there's some sort of sort of social uh, engineering going on to sort of uh, influence men to move more towards the justice perspective, and and opens up the uh, the opportunity for women to use the care perspective, even though the women are certainly. Um, not really dominant on either. Um, it's a little bit more split. We should talk a little bit about this justice and and care perspective and how they how they differ um, before we move on. I okay. Use the term positional relativism. I think that's really good because she uses the uh, notion of the uh, gestalt, which is sort right. of like switching entire perspectives on a thing, such that there are no sort of qualitative similarities between. Um, the two perspectives you might have on a thing. And the classic example of that, as we know, and she uses it, is the duck rabbit, right? Mm. Uh, if you don't know what the duck rabbit is, literally just Google duck rabbit right now, look in Google images, <laughs> see the image. It's one image, right? But you can switch between two perspectives on it such that one is a duck and one is a rabbit. And you can't see both at the same time. That's the key, right? It's one mm. or the other, and it cannot be both at the same time. And so she uses that as the ultimate an- explanatory analogy for the justice and the care perspectives, where you can look at moral problems and moral dilemmas from a justice perspective, where you ask the question, what is just in this scenario? And usually revolves around uh, equality, uh, equality of rights, especially, Um, if used the the individual person from an independence perspective, where uh, where they're an independent person considering what they need to do, or what there are due by others, it usually concerns the negative duties, like what when, what you shouldn't do to other people more so than the positive duties of what you should and shouldn't do, what you actually mm-hmm. should do. And that is contrasted with the care perspective, which focuses more on the question, she says, how I should respond in a scenario. It assumes that your dependence, uh, interdependence with other people, first and foremost, not just an independent person. Uh, it's really concerned with not abandoning people, um, abandonment or detachments kind of considered like the worst possible thing that can happen. It's much more feeling-centered, emotion-centered to consider those things to be the you know, reasons for action. And it's more concerned with the positive duties about um, what you should do for someone and what people should do for you.
1: Can I ask you a question? Because I found this to be the most intriguing, quick little pithy bit of this and it's earlier on it's um for people curious too hold on let me make sure i don't lose my spot here okay uh for people curious the title of the article that we read is called moral orientation and moral development did we already say that just yeah so that, yeah, okay sorry yeah um so you can find it online open access too so i would recommend that you can check it out but on page 5 at the top um it's really this quick thing she says the shift in moral perspective is manifest by a change in the moral question from what is just to how to respond and I found that to be really interesting can you can you expand on like how to really flesh out that difference like what does it really mean when one perspective is concerned with what is just is that more abstract is it more kind of attached to a platonic legacy Um, I know you just said that one is more about like feelings and emotions but I was wondering if we could unpack this a little bit more uh, metaphysically even like is there like a collapse of metaphysics and how to respond and then it becomes a more like flattened, imminent ontology because it's more relational rather than vertical. Like what what's going on here?
0: Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think the the issue of what's the ultimate question in ethics is really fun because it's not just about sort of how do you start doing ethics, although it is about that and that's certainly important. It's also about anytime you're asking different questions, you have to in ethics you have to then ask, how does this connect to the fundamental question? Right. And so if the fundamental question is, what is just, that's going to be a universalist answer, right? But by its very nature, it has universalist implications. What is just is going to be just always and for everyone, Mm. right? Yeah. Whereas how to respond, one, Mm. assumes interdependence, which is super important, right? Which the first question does not assume at all, Um, but does not assume universality. It doesn't assume that uh, how you respond is going to be the same every time, even in the same scenario. It doesn't mean it's going to be the same for one person and another, even if they're in the same scenario or in very similar scenarios. So you have a lot of those implications already in the question. So I think it's it's a really f- interesting way of couching the idea, which is important because especially in ethics, this is how these dilemmas and questions come up, right? When we have to ask ourselves the question because we don't know the answer.
1: So so I I think that, yes, and, and I, it's interesting. I think the phrasing of these two little clauses is so interesting to me and I don't want to put like too much stock in maybe these these kind of um juxtaposed three word phrases but what is just is counterpoised with how to respond it isn't what should I do or what should we do which again appeals I think to a a pre-established sense of justice right but when you simply say how to respond, it seems very processual to me, right? Um, Whereas yeah, some be- how
0: how is very different than what
1: exactly, right? yeah, yeah.
0: It's not a thing or a state of affairs or a description necessarily, right? It kind of opens up the idea of the action's embedded in the answer, where it's not in what is just.
1: Mm. Do you think? That when you say, when you ask how to respond, that there isn't already a pre-existent or like nascent, undeveloped germinal sense of justice? Like like you never you you never are completely blank slated when you think even how to respond. You kind of have maybe uninformed or underdeveloped or maybe even misinformed conceptions of justice that will inform how to respond, but then the idea of how to respond from within the ethics of care opens you up to being aware of how those nascent forms of justice are just that, that they are nascent, they are underdeveloped or undeveloped, or they are conditioned under different logics or something like that. And so the important thing is to attune yourself to this interdependency so that you can redefine and restructure those pre-existent conceptions of justice that you might have.
0: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. In the same sense that, you know, kind of analogously, we often say if someone says they don't have a metaphysics because they want to get away from the idea of talking about metaphysics and just get to the real things or whatever, um, they just have a bad metaphysics, right? Undeveloped (laughs) metaphysics. In the same sense, if you're trying to do an ethics, but you have no notion of justice behind it, you might just have a bad notion of justice behind it, Right. Um, and an yeah, or, like a
1: dogmatic one. notion of justice, even an, an
0: unreflective dogmatic one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and I think Gilligan's actually at least somewhat aware of this idea, right? She says at some point that um, both these, these uh, perspectives have, um, you know, good foci that are helpful. And they also have points of, you know, where they can err pretty easily. So, justice, mm. she says, errs uh, when, it's, when it's by itself. When it sort of considers its own perspective to be objective truth and assumes everyone else is just like that, right? Mm. It gets a little too arrogant in its sort of universality um, and ignores uh, things like exceptions and stuff like that in um, perspectives. But then also care can err as well. When the, she says that some, something like the the subject can become selfless and lose their own agency in the care. Ooh which I think is kind of an interesting thing to think about. But then also I think she mentions this once, but I think it's really important to point out. And it's ultimately where I think the care ethics idea as great as it is and as necessary as it is can ultimately fall short a bit is that you can care for the wrong things. That's certainly Mm. a possibility. Um, And even care for things that end up being wrong to yourself as well. And um, care ethics, I think doesn't necessarily give you all the uh, the means through which you can figure out um, when you care for the wrong things. Um, we've talked before about Paul Bloom's against empathy, right? Yeah, And we have that's some qualms I with that idea. Yeah. I have some qualms with his argument, but I think the the basic idea that that empathy cannot be the sole ground um, of a moral philosophy is correct because we often empathize and care about the wrong things. We're biased towards people who are similar to us and against people who aren't. And so we need something like a universalized justice, something like that kind of perspective to help us figure out when we're being biased and how to correct that, right? And I think Gelligan's great at saying we need both perspectives. And that's, I just think, one reason, one really important reason why.
1: Mm, yeah, she's not, she's not saying, Kohlberg, you're a fucking idiot. Uh, and people who th- are in pursuit of justice, you guys are just completely wrong. It's kind of like, well, hey, there's like a duality here right? Your perspective is overly what we might call the masculine logic, let's say. And I mean that not in the sense of like male biological essentialism, but this tendential logic that has been associated with maybe, let's say, a a masculine orientation in the world. And she's like, but you have to remember that there are these other people that we need to consider when we're doing these case studies. And she's a psychologist, so she's using a lot of data sets and in empirical evidence and case studies and whatnot as as her foothold and she's realizing that most of these subjects that were in these previous studies are all just white dudes right and she's like hold on a second here we have these other people that need to be considered and uh, so she's like we need to kind of flesh out our perspectives I was wondering though with that said how much would this change if you and I'm sure that there is research into like 21st century care ethics but how does this change in 2019 let's say 2020 when taking in the trans experience the black female experience the black uh black gender differentiations um various even let's say a a biological male but someone who's raised by women in uh, a culture that isn't like a hypermasculine culture or something like that. Like this seems to be just a very muddy, not in a bad way, but just a very complex field that is really rich for study. But I wonder if there's anything that kind of like expands on this that you are familiar with that I just don't know
0: about. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. I think I don't. I'm not familiar with the the recent research that gets into those very different experiences, but you can kind of see where that would go, right? Um, at, at least as Gilligan has has sort of um, pronounced here. If we had that kind of social aspect of um, sort of inculcating and initiating boys largely into the justice perspective and and girls kind of in between the care and the justice perspective and opening up more opportunities for the care perspective, and that would mean um, the the more you know, quote unquote, intersectional that you get, the the more sort of varied uh, those things can be, right? Yeah. Um, and the overlap can be sort of interesting. Um, I do, know th- we're kind of moving back and forth between the descriptive and the normative here, which is I think important to point out. This article is largely descriptive, right? It's talking about moral development and the orientations people have um, towards moral questions and concerns. And we're kind of moving back and forth between that and the normative. That's that's fine. I think that's that's appropriate given the circumstances. Well, she's a
1: psychologist. We're philosophers, so yeah. So we're going to do that.
0: <laughs> we do that now. Right. As long as we point it out, it's totally fine, right? <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. But yeah, I think that. Uh, that's super interesting. And, you know, why don't we talk about some of the actual cases here? Cause they're kind of fun to talk okay. about. And I think as, 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 as like quality radio, that's probably better than, uh, cool. Too much of this philosophy stuff. Cool. Um, so one of the cases that I thought was really interesting, what to kind of illuminate what this justice perspective is and how it's different from the care perspective, um, was, um, the religious disagreement, um, mm. example. And so the, the justice perspective was, uh, sort of, um, The example of that was from a boy who disagreed with his parents about his religious preferences and beliefs and um, couched the sort of uh, moral nature of the problem in terms of his parents needing to respect his beliefs. um, That he has a right to them because he's an independent person who gets to have his own beliefs, right?
1: Mm.
0: Whereas the girl in the study said that her parents ought to listen to her and try to understand her perspective. And so you see that the difference between respecting a belief and how that comes from the more justice perspective, right? It's what you're due mm. somebody else. And um, that being the assumption of independence existing there, right? Like I have my own independent beliefs, and that's why they should be respected because they're my independent beliefs. Whereas the the care perspective comes from the girl saying something like, um, my parents have a duty, right? They ought to listen to me. They have to do this relational um action right and then understand my point of view right so it's not just that you should do this action but you should like be in a state and of relation to me of understanding my perspective it's it's subtle but it's it's clearly different Hmm. right
1: yeah so i've been thinking a lot about the issue of like uh quantitative uh analytical rationality in relation to, like, lecon and male sexuation versus feminine sexuation, and then also kind of trying to tie that back into, like, notions of qualitative understandings of the world. I read this book, and uh, I've been thinking a lot about this guy named Rene Ganon, who wrote a book called The Reign of Quantity, and I've just been thinking a lot about, like, eye-for-an-eye eye justice um, types of orientations and thinking about them as being essentially these, like, mathematical quantitative, extensionally quantitative, um, types of approaches. And I was thinking a lot about this as well, that this idea of like, I am due respect is kind of a tit for tat quid pro quo one for one type of orientation. Whereas the other that I am, that you ought to listen to me isn't opposed to any sort of like quantitative like that there is a quid pro quo or a relational thing but it isn't pre-established that there is a one-for-one um easily analyzable quantitative logic there that you get more into a different type of quantitative quantitativity which I would call intentional in Deleuzean terms so if people understand that then you can kind of look into that or maybe even veering into like a sort of qualitative relational um ethic. And I think that there's something going on there in that division. When you think about like, because I think about this a lot with like my dad, like, what do I want with my dad? Like one of my frustrations with my father, or in my relationship with my father, is that I feel like sometimes I don't tell him things that are going on in my life, or I don't share certain bits of news, because I just, whether rightly or wrongly, we can set that aside for a second. But I anticipate the criticism, because it's not going to be good enough, because it's not me you know, worshipping Jesus or spreading the gospel in the way that he understands it from his, like, reformed Calvinistic perspective, right? So it's like, yeah, I've got a movie that's potentially playing at one of the largest film festivals in the entire world next year, but that doesn't matter as much because it's not, like, where's the Bible in it, right? Or, oh, you know, I've written a book. Well, where's the Bible in it, (laughs) you know? And it's like, so I know that it just doesn't fit, and so I'm trying to think, like, what do I want from my dad? Do I want respect or do I is there some sort of relational thing that I just want him to fucking listen and it was so interesting because when I was going through my surgery my mom was here she flew out for my surgery and then she helped me with the immediate post-op recovery right and like sometimes I don't even care what comes out of my mom's mouth when I tell her something it's just that she responds with support and care and then I cry because I'm like (laughs) I love you so much because you care does that make sense like it's just the fact that she's there and that she cares and that she's my social safety net that makes me cry. She could be saying, and then pat me on the head and I'm going to cry because I'm like, oh my God, you love me. So I almost feel like there's that that's different than saying like, I want her to be like, yes, you are right or yes, your position is good, which I think would be more of like that one-to-one thing in this case study of like the- the boy. Whereas I feel like I'm, maybe I'm almost exhibiting more of that. Like the, what, what the, the, the girl's perspective was, and, uh, but I don't know, maybe that's not entirely true. I'm kind of, you know, flapping no, no, about I think, now, but yeah, no,
0: I, think, I think that's right. Because the, the wanting someone to listen and understand assumes you have a relationship with that person, right? That's already embedded in the idea. You, you don't want somebody who's a stranger on the street to listen and understand, right? Um, I mean, why would you if you don't know who they are? But you might Mm. want them to respect you in the sense of they're not going to rob you because they respect your humanity or whatever, right? Mm. So um, yeah, the the obvious difference there is the care perspective assumes interdependence. Um, And so the relationship you have with someone kind of dictates and determines in a strong sense what the um, moral relations should be uh, between you. And so yeah, I think that's exactly mm. right. And that's why you know I think it's very common for people to have a relationship with their, especially boys have a relationship with their father, where um, respect is the dominant relationship uh, or relation. Um, and with the mother, it's this more you know care oriented relation. And sometimes that can be bad on both counts. <laughs> mm. Right. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know if that, if they ever do any actual research where they talk about uh, like inter-family dynamics exhibiting these, these kind of perspectives, but it seems Like it's already there in this religious disagreement example, right? Using the family uh, dynamic as um, the sort of the locus of these two perspectives.
1: That's really interesting because so for background for people listening, the reason that Troy recommended that we read this article is I reached out to him and I said, I've been thinking a lot about just the issue of care and concern. It's something that comes up a lot in um, in political ecology uh, environmental issues, things like that, uh, especially now more recently, but also even um, in kind of like critical political economy and things like that, where people are trying to think through how it is that we can understand the effects of like financialized logics in the household and things like that. Does that affect relations of care and things like that? You know, do, do we just become like purely uh, homo economicus type of subjects where everything is just an economic transaction, even at the dinner table, right? And so there's a lot of people that are doing work on trying to introduce care and concern as a category that's integral to understanding social, economic, political, economic, political, ecological concerns. And I've been thinking a lot about the environment. And I've been thinking a lot about our our thrownness into the world and uh, ecological predicaments and things like that, um, which I think kind of relate to this. But I wonder...
0: And you keep using like, Heideggerian terms like Sorge and I want nothing to do with that shit. So I'm like, I'm bringing <laughs> in the analytic moral philosophy. Here we go. <laughs> okay, so,
1: so help us out. You know, I'll, I'll walk on to off the path and you bring us back. Um, but like, like how, how can we take this similar thing? And I know that we're jumping off the case studies now in the examples, but let's like look at the environment and. Is there a sense in which, like you're saying, like the person that comes up, and I'm totally using an, an uh, analogies here, and I hope it doesn't get too confusing, but so the person coming up to you on the street, you don't want them to rob you. Is there a sense in which there's kind of an economic relation, a socioeconomic relationship there? You know, I do this for you, you do this for me, or I don't do this to you, you don't do this for me, right, sort of thing, um, and that that's maybe different from the interpersonal relational experience that you have with someone that you have a trusting relationship with, like the experience that I talked about with my mom earlier, which isn't as transactional. And is there a sense in which we can kind of like map that onto our relationship to the ecosystem or ecosystems in which we find ourselves, that there is a sense in which there's a transactional, you know, like I'm going to take from the earth a particular thing so that I can make a certain thing. And then of course we obviously give back in terms of like we expel oxygen and, um, you know, we, our skin cells are falling off. So there's always a sense in which there's a reciprocity, but there's a sense in which we can kind of like more consciously attune ourselves, not to this type of transactional relationship where we're extracting for economic purposes, um, but that rather we can kind of like attune ourselves to a more care relationship where we find ourselves interrelated to um, ecosystems and elements within ecosystems.
0: Yeah. So I'm not positive that I'm following uh, where you're going with that, but you know, correct me if I'm going off track here, but you know, I, I, and this kind of gets to the ultimate question I wanted to ask you about this, and which is basically, do you think that Gilligan is right that these two perspectives are? Um, I don't know if the term is mutually exclusive, but if they're if they're gestalt, like they have to be one or the other at a time, uh, if they can't be integrated, is basically the idea she kind of um, you know removes from the equation. Um, that seems really unsatisfying to me. Uh, I read that and I'm like, no way, man, I'm going to, I'm to try to integrate them <laughs> because yeah. the care perspective seems like an obvious remedy to the weaknesses of the justice perspective, but then vice versa. Also, um, it does seem like there's a sense in which if your relationship is, uh, with your mother is purely this one of, of care that could end up being parasitic in a way. Um, and that if your relationship is purely based upon justice, then you're obviously missing out on the whole idea of relationship in the first place. Right. So um, there's some sense, and you mentioned the person on the street, right? Uh, Yeah. So the justice perspective probably dominates the relationship with the person on the street more than someone, you know, because clearly you don't have much of a relationship with them, but you have some, right. If they fell down as if struck by lightning, like having a heart attack or something, um, it wouldn't just be because you, you know, owe them something as a citizen of your country that you should help them, there should be some sense of like that you care about this person because they're suffering and people suffering is something you should care about. Right. Not just because yeah. of some abstract philosophical sense in which uh, those who suffer are due moral consideration, but because you actually care in some sense, right. Or maybe the caring flows from some sense in which you think that they deserve more consideration. I don't know how that works exactly, but there's going to be care there. Uh, and there should be like, this seems like normative in that sense. Um, And maybe that even extends beyond just humans, right? Maybe that extends to everything that we're interdependent with, Um, which of course would be everything. So then it extends to the extension of that is, you know, all that exists. Um, And so I, I just, I think that there's some sense in which these two perspectives have to be inclusive, right. And have to be uh, married. Um, But I don't know exactly how that cashes out either in terms of orientation and the descriptive sense that you know a psychologist is going to talk about or just in the purely you know you know moral philosophy sense or theoretical sense um, yeah. how we can involve uh, care and justice together in ways where they actually help each other out
1: yeah I've actually had people like even in, in the Christian world where like I went through a phase where I mean I guess I'm still kind of in that phase but you know this kind of like universalist like Like, no, we shouldn't just only love the local church or we shouldn't just only prioritize the nuclear family. But the same amount of love that we have for the local church, we should try to extend to our neighbor, to the other. And so it's almost like a universalization of the care disposition so that the stranger on the street becomes just as important as, you know, your elders or your children or something like that. And I've had Christian people tell me, no, that's not how it works. It can't work that way. And it shouldn't be that way, but that there is like a, a a hierarchy of priority that matters. And I think that that there's something interesting about that tension there. And I wonder if one is almost a default setting, which what I which is what I think the position that 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 respondent is um, is then legitimating and valorizing to the hilt, right that they're saying like no, I'm limited, therefore I'm going to legitimate this limitation with a religious doctrine whereas what I'm wondering is is okay is that not like kind of like a de facto because of whatever certain social maybe even biological um, existential limitations but that rather we can kind of war with that towards this universalist care perspective and that we can learn to care for the stranger on the street and then we can try to do that as well with And I don't just mean trees like let's hug trees because they're humans too. Like you see those funny viral videos of people crying when, you know, trees are being deforested or something like that. I'm not talking about that. But there is something interesting in the cry of the environmentalists who are crying about the tree. The fact that they sincerely feel that pain is something that I kind of admire because I don't feel that. And I wonder what it's like to care so much about a uh, non-human entity, right, in the world. Um, I, I... or just to care in general. Like I think growing up in the suburbs taught me to be nonchalant about shit. Like as being a white middle class yuppie. Because like, that's cool. Because <laughs> Everything's it's easy ironic, to, yeah. Yeah, everything's ironic. It's easy to tra- attract chicks when you're at a bar and you're not trying too hard. Like the motto that my friends and I always used was from the movie Swingers. Act like you don't need the shit. You get the shit for free. <laughs> you know? Like, like that kind of stuff. So, so to actually care about things is something that really matters to me. And I thought about this a lot when I was in the hospital, like looking at people who fucking cared for each other. And it was amazing for me. And it really was emotionally impactful. And it made me start to critically engage myself and think about, well, how can I care more? Not just about humans, but how can I care about the world, the earth? And I think some people that know me would be like, no, dude, you're not nonchalant. You do care. And yeah, sometimes, but but sometimes I don't and then a lot of times I am disattached and and a lot of times I think when I get to that point when I care to the point where it makes me feel vulnerable because I'm exposed in my caring of the other, that's when I become nonchalant and then I cut myself off and I take myself to that limit until I am exposed and then I say, nah, I don't really care and then I kind of insulate myself into my own individuality and I wonder if there isn't a sense in which we can that the care ethic perspective challenges that tendency to retreat back into my insularity and continues to just open myself and disrupt myself towards the otherness of the other that other being not just a human but everything you know
0: yeah it seems like especially um, educated white males in you know 21st century america are so up their own ass six different ways that um, it's it's hard to even embrace the idea of care like how do you care about a thing without having you know four different ironic dispositions uh, relative to each other um, mm-hmm. to like distancing you from the thing you care about, the object of care. Right. Um, but then it's not hard. And this is maybe just like purely stereotypical from movies I've seen, but it's not hard to mm-hmm. think about someone who does care about the trees from an authentic perspective because they, they have some like ontology of the trees uh, in which the tree actually has some sort of significance. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, That is not hard. to. So even if you see like the, you know, the the educated white liberal who's crying because trees are being cut down, you look at that and you just kind of like like scoff or whatever. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Maybe that's too ironic. Maybe that's appropriate, whatever. But it's certainly possible. And certainly you think some people have cared about, you know, um, animate but, you know, non-sentient beings, trees or whatever. And that can authentically be done. And so you have to ask the question, what do they have that I don't? And maybe they're right. (laughs) And so, and and I think that you might find in that investigation that there's some sense in which those people think that it's just to treat treats with respect and that the care flows from that, right? Mm. So that these two approaches can be symbiotic in a way where justice sort of constrains care and um, care sort of executes the demands of justice and you know i that's like super vague and ambiguous and
1: it maybe even challenges the confines of justice
0: and in, in what sense
1: it doesn't just execute justice but it also challenges how the um, dictates or um, how the principles of justice themselves are formulated
0: yeah right? and and how they're executed because a big part of the and government how government they're executed yeah. 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 It's a big part of that's exceptions, understanding other people's perspectives, uh, which justice uh really tries to erase, right? You think of like right. the Rawlsian original position, right? It just gets rid of all perspectives. Um mm. and all you know, particularities and differences. Uh which is an important thing to do in some respects, right? Um, but then it, it leaves a lot out that's super important. And so yeah, it it's I I wanna believe these two things are more symbiotic than like guest thought switches. But uh So how do you how do you listen
1: to the environment then without because so so here's one of the things I've been thinking about. I feel like a lot of you have like the pure economic perspective, uh, let's say the the extractive capitalist perspective, right? Which is that, you know, the environment is just there to benefit our own selfish pursuits, which I don't know how limited that is. I don't know how unconscious and just purely structural that is, but whatever. Let's say that then you have more of kind of like the liberal like, no, you have um uh environmental economics it's like no we need we need to, to treat the environment justly and fairly so we can extract certain things but you know within reason because we understand scientifically that we can't disrupt certain balances within certain ecosystems or whatever right that but nevertheless, for the
0: sake of, of human survival and flourishing
1: yeah but, yeah for the most part let's say right yeah. um but but it still uses an economic logic Right, it still you know divides the, the the Earth up into like quantifiable bits and tries to put a price on to the environment. And then you have maybe a little bit more radical, which is like uh, political ecology or uh, like steady state stuff, which tries to be like, no, let's let's live like degrowth lives, sustainable lives. You know, Herman Daly is probably the big figure in steady state um, economics for that. And then you have like more radical, like, no, we need to decolonize, um, decarbonization, you know, anti-capitalist perspectives. But I wonder, even within most of those kind of more progressive liberal ideas, as we're moving towards more of a perception of caring for the world, are they not still oftentimes tied to a logic of justice? And that there wouldn't be a, and this is kind of what I was getting at earlier, it wouldn't be a stronger position if we kind of put the idea of a care ethic at the forefront of even those radical orientations. Like let's say if we're moving down the spectrum uh, from the degrowth, steady-state stuff over more towards the, the radical positions. And then we infuse care ethics towards the world, towards the earth, towards our placidness within the world Um, if we put that at the forefront of our socio-political or political-ecological orientation. And this is where somebody like Donna Haraway comes in. And I think we talked about this a few episodes ago with this idea of sympoiesis, is what she calls it, which I think fits really well into a type of care ethic in a different way. The interdependence idea, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you think?
0: Yeah, I think that the issue would just be, I don't think most people do think that they're interdependent with the environment in in any important way. It seems like the the idea of nature as a as a human tool, um, simply of use value, is just really embedded, especially in like you know Western capitalist uh, democracies and, and in their culture. But even and Marxists, it, it, is, it, isn't, it isn't necessary. But yeah,
1: no, but even Marxists they kind of stop at a limit where they want to eschew exchange value, but in to to replace it with use value, and I think even that still is limited. Right?
0: oh yeah it's it's not just like you know capitalism that does this um yeah. so yeah it's, it's almost any anthropocentric approach i mean i think yeah mm. by definition anthropocentric approaches are going to be ones that don't foreground interdependence of the environment mm. um and it's 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 really especially from an ethical point of view because ethics by its very nature assumes human superiority in some way it seems like because it's asking what should like humans do Right. Which means that we have some sort of agency, which nature doesn't have. Um, and so there's some like implicit, uh, subtle human superiority there. So it's like the question is really, how do you not be anthropocentric? Um, that's like, that's super tough, man. I have no idea how you'd even approach uh, changing the very investigative conditions um, of like mm-hmm. an environmental ethic. Does that make sense, what I'm getting at?
1: Totally, totally. I mean, I think, like, especially socially, politically, ethically, personally, how do you shift that disposition is so hard. Like, individually, it's hard, let alone within your family, within your city, within your economic system, within your political structures. And then talk about global, uh, like, transnational communities. Like, to change the tide of our, like, collective rational orientation in the world seems like it would require a god literally right like because maybe we had to go
0: back again only a god can save us <laughs> <laughs> I, know, I was going to say that but no really
1: like it, it does seem like that but you know what I'm thinking I'm thinking of Sergei Prozorov and do you remember at the end of uh, avoid universalism one when he starts talking about He says, I don't know how we could use this investigation towards that end, but by understanding this ontology of the void, we have to realize that this is not an anthropocentric philosophical position, but rather the non-human becomes integral to this because the void is a universal principle. So it's not just universal politics or global politics, but rather it has to be a sort of total universal ontology of everything. Right and
0: and Prasra's program was a justice perspective, if there ever was one. Um, it's very much uh, you know descriptive and universalistic. So I think that the, yeah, the fact that even uh, the three principles, right, um, equality, uh, freedom, and community, right, hmm. notice two of those are the Rawlsian principles of mm-hmm. justice, right? Because uh, they come out of the French Revolution
1: kind of yeah. idea, right? Fraternity, egalitarian, yeah. yeah.
0: Equality and liberty are the principles of of justice for the Raleigh mm. position, right? Leaving out community, the very one which talks about interdependence. Um, and so I, th- that could just be bullshit, but <laughs> I just thought that was like an, an obvious, uh, important addition to the Prozorov justice format, basically, uh, mm. including interdependence or community, uh, which maybe says a little bit more about this idea that uh, interdependence, community, um, fraternity, um, Care can all have a symbiotic relationship with with the justice perspective. Maybe that's maybe that's possible. It certainly isn't active uh, mm. right now um, in our sort of uh, social and political imagination. But it, it's going to have to be, otherwise, we're going to fuck all this shit up.
1: Do, do you think that this that this set of concerns is exclusively, or maybe just primarily, or mostly? a western concern and that if we look to eastern philosophy african philosophy aboriginal philosophy here in australia um etc that we find like already a care ethic or something that would be maybe um like some sort of productive i don't know bedfellow with a care ethic that we can glean from is this like primarily a concern of like post western or maybe even like post-renaissance kind of european malaise
0: yeah i mean i don't want to go so far as to say like uh you know enlightenment uh western rationalism is like the cause of this whole problem uh even if it, it largely is it's certainly not the only culture in history which has uh used and abused the environment um but it certainly seems like if you want to get an example of it you're going to have to go elsewhere and as as I was saying before, like it seems obvious that there's some cultures in history that have done much better at this, right? Um, with regarding interdependence with the environments um, and, and creating the symbiosis between justice and care and that with that respect. So yeah, I mean, do you have any uh, ideas about where that might be found?
1: Well, I mean, I, I real, before I do that, I will say there does tend to be a sort of, and maybe this is kind of a Western liberal almost like a paternalistic, um, uh, like, what is the phrase? Oh, not the beautiful savage, um, noble savage noble kind savage. of yeah. perspective on, like, Native Americans, for example. Like, oh, we just need to listen to indigenous people because they actually have always cared about the environment. They've always well, the, been sustainable. Well,
0: like, that's somewhat true.
1: <laughs> and it is, it is yeah. <laughs> right. But, but how do we... How do we glean from, like I've been reading a little bit of Russell Means, who's a, a Native American or American uh, Indian writer. He actually likes the word Indian, um, but uh, American Indian writer. And he talks uh, a little bit about stuff like this. And yeah, like it is a little bit true, but how do we listen to Russell Means? How do we listen to... Um, you know, the First Nations people here in Australia? How do we listen to uh, Hindu philosophy? How do we listen to African, uh, the history of African philosophies um, that are not colonized? And I think that's why, so I'm a part of a climate justice collective here. And one of the, the things that really concerns a lot of a lot of the activists within that group is um, decolonization, right? Because they recognize that there's a colonial logic that is kind of embedded within our orientation um to the environment, and so that we can uh, we can try to scrape beneath that to get to a sort of like pre-colonial or post-colonial or whatever perspective that will help us to better attune ourselves, or, or let's say position ourselves within the world. Attune ourselves, attune ourselves to the world, and then position ourselves within the world. But I wonder sometimes it can come come across as like paternalistic, um, and then like really, um, I don't know, like padding the good. The good savages on the head and being like, "Oh you you know you guys were good, but now we're going to take your ideas, and we're still going to use them in the causes of industrialization or whatever you know
0: well that seems the key right if you use it for the cause of industrialization, then that's clearly um like unethical <laughs> so yeah yeah, yeah, it's, yeah it's more about like literally listening right listening and and trying to learn from somebody else who does their shit better and as more of an, an adult than you do." <laughs>
1: <laughs> right, I mean, that was one of the things that actually really impressed me with the climate strike that happened here in the last couple of weeks. The amount of um, indigenous voices that were actually at the forefront of the climate—at least here in Australia—I don't know how it was elsewhere, but at least here in Australia, it was pretty striking. Like I was pretty Im- like overwhelmed actually, and it's it's something that um, that we're constantly working through in our own group is is making sure that we're not just a bunch of like educated white. Uh, activists, but that we actually not just throw a token out there so that we can have the token indigenous representative, but rather actually truly authentically experience the world from within a different framework, you know? And that's fucking hard. I, but
0: Yeah, it's, I it's fucking hard, but it's super important. Crucial. Right? That's really the only way you learn. Otherwise you're just you know, navel gazing.
1: Yeah. And I think that's kind of what Gilligan is offering, right? Is it's that different perspective. It's that different position. It's that different orientation that is crucial to uh, like place as an integral component of your ethic in the world.
0: Yeah. So even if you haven't done the brilliant, you know, moral philosophical um, move and integrated the perspectives, you can at least practice both of them. That's certainly uh, like a, you know, practical ethical um, change that you can make. Hmm.
1: Well, cool. Well, I say we go ahead and wrap it up there. Yeah, man?
0: Yeah, that, that was fun. I'm, I'm glad we did that and then took it down an avenue that was not obviously related. I'm talking about yeah. environmental ethical issues.
1: Yeah, and this is, I mean, she's one of the people that I've I've seen referenced a billion times. And I've seen the phrase care ethics referenced a billion times. And you hear about it in seminars all the time. But I've actually never read her. Well, that's not true. In like one of those like anthologies, I think I read. Like an excerpt of something previously too, but but I don't really spend much time reading, obviously analytic stuff, and I think this is kind of a crucial text within the analytic circles. So I'm glad I got to read it.
0: Yeah, yeah. All right, so let's move on to the sticky leaves segment of the show. This is where one of us talks about whatever it is it's giving us meaning in a potentially meaningless universe. So, Austin. I can't imagine anything's happened to you recently, with so you should probably just skip this part of the show, right?
1: Yeah, it's, it's impossible for me to even try to narrow this down to uh, a single thing. I guess since we're going to do a bonus episode, I mean, we're going to talk about the K-hole experience, and then we're going to kind of talk about uh, my time in the hospital a little bit. So I think I'll reserve the hospital stuff and post-hospital thoughts and things like that for the bonus episode. I know that might be unfair um, for people who want to hear it, but um, we'll just dedicate an entire episode to that. And then maybe down the future um, I can release that episode. There's that singular episode on the main thing, but it's just too much to talk about in like a 10 minute segment. Right. So what I am going to talk about is something else that has given me meaning. Um, So before I got sick, I actually had an appointment to get, My tattoo finished up on my right arm. And I got sick on a Friday, and my appointment was for the following Thursday. And when I first got to the hospital, I didn't realize how severe... Uh, the the issue was and I thought that like they would just have to give me some oxygen it would reflate my lung they'd give me like some oral steroids maybe some inhalers maybe it was like an asthma induced thing I don't have asthma but I don't know maybe like an allergy induced asthma thing and so I was like oh, I'll be done you know in a couple hours and then they're like oh we're gonna keep you here overnight and then I'm like okay well cool then I can leave tomorrow and then it's like no, you might have to be here a couple more days. And then it's like, oh, well, now we might have to do surgery. And then it's like, okay, how much longer am I going to stay? So it gets to be like Tuesday and I find out that I'm, or Monday and I'm fi- I find out I'm having surgery. And so I had to cancel my tattoo appointment. I was so bummed. So I told him, I'm like, I don't know when I'll be recovered, but I'll let you know um, when I'm able. And uh, I may have rushed it, but I decided, <laughs> I decided to get my tattoo done this week. And it's a half sleeve, so like I already have a half sleeve on my right arm that goes down to my elbow. And so this is like the rest of it, pulling it out down to my wrist, actually beyond my wrist, it goes down to my hand. Um, but uh, I got the tattoo done two days ago and um, I just, I fucking love, and not only do I love the, uh, the art, like I'm a little bit obsessed with it. It's I'm like a kid after Christmas when you get a new toy. And I literally woke up the day after I got the tattoo at like 5 a.m. And I just wanted to look at pictures and look at it in the (laughs) mirror (laughs) and shit like that. And then it was the same thing yesterday. I was so excited and I I just, I fucking love it so much. Um, So if people are interested in seeing it, you can, oh, actually it won't be on my Insta story anymore, but I tweeted about it. So you can go to my Twitter uh, and you can see, I I posted some photos of it. Um, Or you can go to the tattoo artist. Um, He's on uh, Insta at at Gordo G O R D O, and then it's T A U B. So G O R D O T A U B. These brilliant fucking tattoo artist does some weird like abstract watercolor stuff, and um, and my tattoo is the most recent post. But by the time this episode comes comes out, or by the time you listen, it might be later. But you'll see. Just look through them. Um, anyway, I just fucking love the the experience of the tattoo. That's the thing I want to talk about more. It's so strange because I'm getting the tattoo. Yeah, and that's what I wanted to talk about. Cause like, so we thought it was going to be four hours. That's what we were, that's what he thought. And I told, when he told me four hours, I was like, I think that's quick considering the amount of stuff I'm getting done. <laughs> but he said four hours and I was like, okay, dude, we'll see. Um, Cause it is kind of sparse too. People will see, even though it's a half sleeve, it's not like fully colored in all the way down and it's black and gray. So, and it's kind of sparsely placed with some different elements. So, but I was like, are you sure? Uh, well, it wasn't four hours. It was seven hours. And that was about what I thought it would be. <laughs> <laughs> um, but and of course not working the entire time. you know some of it's you know p- applying the stencil, making sure everything is pl- uh, spaced appropriately, bathroom breaks, food breaks um, but uh, but I'd say it's about five and a half to six hours of actual work and um it hurts man. like anyone who says it doesn't hurt, I think is full of shit. The question is is can you deal with the pain? like it's not comfortable. it's not like when you eat ice cream or have sex, which causes immediate joy. Like there's there's I mean unless you're down with the painful funky shit in sex I'm just talking about pure orgasm. Um it feels good. When you eat ice cream it feels good. This isn't that. It doesn't feel good. You have a needle going into your fucking skin. It hurts. Especially but how much certain... how much does
0: it hurt like compared to what?
1: It depends on the part. Um I heard somebody once describe it as it's like having a sunburn and then having a cat scratch it.
0: For hours and hours.
1: For hours and hours. <laughs> and and i think sometimes it does feel like that so certain parts like the inner arm like the inner bicep um from my from my previous tattoo there's a lot of shading in there on mine that hurts down towards the elbow hurts cuz it's just bone um the inner elbow that that little ditch area there that's really sensitive skin that hurts the wrist Really hurts. For me, actually, the wrist, I've got some pretty heavy shading in the wrist area. That hurt a lot for me. And then I'm also, you know, I'm not like a huge dude. So I've also got like, there's not a lot of like um, skin or padding there. So it's like right on the bone. And you also feel the machine moving on your bone. So it's not just a skin thing. So that kind of hurts. The inner arm was really weird, like down, down the wrist, you know, because, you know, people cut themselves or like people commit suicide there. So it almost felt unnatural when he was tattooing that part of my arm because I got kind of creeped out because I was thinking about that shit. Um, so that hurts. But then the other parts, they ju- it just sucks. Like, you're just kind of like, all right, dude, like, I get it. I get it now. <laughs> it's, been f- <laughs> it's been four hours. Cool. Um, but then here's the weird thing. Like... I got really—we both actually did. I got really like bummed when he was almost done, like when I knew that it was the final couple of pieces that that he was, or the elements that he was gonna 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 work on. It was kind of like uh, I was like, I didn't want the experience to end. It's there's this strange enjoyment that comes, even when my arm hurts after being at this tattoo shop for seven hours. And, or seven plus hours. I got there at 11. I didn't leave until seven. Um, and, uh, but I just didn't want it to end. And I think him too, because I gave him so much creative artistic license that he had such an amazing time. Like he was so jazzed to do this. And we actually come to kind of have become friends through the process of like collaborating with ideas and coming up with sketches and stuff like that. Um, but we're both like, man, I kind of don't want it to end. You know, it's like, okay, well, what else can you tattoo on me, dude? And so there's this, <laughs> There's like this weird camaraderie, this weird relationship that, that kind of got, got built up or that gets built up through the, through the tattooing process, especially over a long duration. And I don't know. It's just kind of a strange experience. It kind of sounds weird, huh? Well,
0: yeah, this brings up the question then: if if it's this enjoyable and this much of a meaningful experience. Are you going to get more?
1: Oh, fuck yeah. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, now I've. I've got the sleeve on my right arm. I've got a piece on my side, at the moment. Um, so, but I, my, my plan when I first started my half sleeve on my right arm was always to finish the sleeve on that right arm. That just took me ten years to come up with the idea and feel comfortable about what I wanted to do to finish the lower half of the arm. But the idea was always that that would be themed based on John Milton's poem "Il Penseroso," um, very loosely, at least. And that the other arm was going to be dedicated to the sister poem to that, which is La Allegra, which is the happy man. And so the idea is still always there. I, I want to do it. And I've actually found, I think, the, the basic ideas in rough form for what I want to do. So, yeah, I will. I will. It's so weird. You know, usually people think when you're young and you're dumb and you're in your 20s, you want to get, like, stupid tattoos and then you regret it later. I'm actually the opposite now. I'm in my 30s now, and now I'm like, I want to be covered, you know?
0: Well, <laughs> I think there's a sea change happening. At least anecdotally amongst people uh, regarding tattoos it's much more uh socially accepted now especially uh amongst you know people who are actually in the like full-on middle age
1: mm. it's not so much like a rebellious thing Yeah, right? it's
0: definitely more of like you know a creative expressivist kind of thing now
1: yeah but i will say that part of it is a little bit rebellious for me i mean obviously if for people who have seen the tattoo or for people who don't know the themes are all quite revolutionary, political, a little bit rebellious, somewhat in-your-face. You know, I've got a song lyric from one of my favorite songs by Rise Against uh, that's with hope in our hearts and bricks in our hands. We sing for change. I also use that in the, the sort of preface of my book, and I talk about how this book is like my metaphorical brick, and so I've got some bricks on my arm that turn into a pen moving down my hand because the idea is that my pen is my metaphorical brick, so rather than having literal bricks in my hands, singing for change it's the pen or my artistic output is the idea right so you have stuff like that I've got like um, these figures on there that are inspired from some pictures from the protests uh, the student protests in Paris in May 68 there's like a Molotov cocktail with a flower growing out of it so it's a little bit of like destruction but also creation and life at the same time you know there's uh, l'imagination à pouvoir is written on my arm which is again a, a great slogan from May 68 that was graffitied everywhere so th- there's definitely like that rebellious element but for me it's definitely more more of a creative, artistic thing. And the style is totally like street art, right? So there's an aesthetic thing going on here, but it goes down to my hand. And and uh, that's generally referred to when you get it on your hand or on your neck, they call it the everlasting job stopper.
0: Because <laughs> <laughs> you can't cover it up?
1: Because it can't cover it up. Yeah. And I had a bunch of my friends were like, dude, do you want to go down to the hand? Are you sure? And I'm like, if I made this decision in my, like, early 20s, which most people do, they make, they get the neck tattoo or the hand tattoo in their 20s, and it's like, dude, are you sure? And they're like, yeah, man, it's cool, fuck it, I don't care. But I'm in my mid-30s, you know? And I've been thinking about this shit for ages, right? So it's kind of like, fuck it, you know? So there there is still a little bit of a rebelliousness, and actually post-hospital experience, I'm starting to become even more fuck it. Not fuck it like... I'm just going to be this blatant asshole, but kind of like, I'm kind of going to start to just not, I'm going to try at least even more so to not be so concerned about what social restrictions say or what social expectations impose upon me. And I'm kind of going to do my thing. And if I love it, I'm going to do it. And if I want to do it, I'm going to do it. And that's, that's hard for me because I tend to be very you know, try to please everybody sort of thing. And I'm trying always to manage that balance. And part of getting the tattoo down my hand is a sort of like performative act to remind myself, well, fuck them, you know?
0: Well, you know, dude, um, getting a tattoo down your hand, and especially the ones that are very uh, explicitly leftist and political like the ones you have, right? (laughs) Um, Means that you may never get a, like a real, real quote-unquote job. But... You'll always have the opportunity to sell your soul and become a right-wing hack and troll, because having explicit leftist tattoos and then like making your hay as a person who converted from a leftist political orientation to the right wing makes you the most authentic right-wing person that there is. Right? Like they all want to have that. Like, oh, I I left the left, right? Mm. And so I'm proof that uh, it's intellectually disingenuous or whatever or pure you know virtue signaling. And so, you could actually advertise at the best. You have an opportunity there, always before you, in case you ever need to sell out.
1: Are you saying I'm gonna be like the next Gavin McGinnis?
0: I'm just saying if you need the money, man. if you like <laughs> need a life-saving operation, you're still in America and you you don't have health care, you know what you can do for six months. Oh, jeez. I think I think a more a more plausible
1: scenario is that when I start my home church in the mountains, I'm going to be a very authentic <laughs> pastor because I'll be able to stand out there and I'll be like, I was rebellious and youthful in my in my 30s when I had a sort of late kind of punk phase. I think <laughs> that's, that's more plausible.
0: Yeah, you'll definitely be the old guy who has lots of stories.
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, explaining your tattoos to your
0: grandchildren, close. that's definitely something that I'll never experience.
1: You don't think you'll ever get one? No. No, is it like just... Because you aesthetically aren't into them, is it because you don't think you could, you could ha- come up with the idea? Um, what is what is your resistance?
0: I, I'm, a, I'm aesthetically into them on other people. Yeah, just don't have any desire to have one for myself, and also would regret instantly whatever I chose. I
1: don't it's have so, enough it, of
0: an artistic impulse to really do it anyway.
1: But you're such a music guy, and not only are you a music guy, you're into heavy music, yeah, which you know is. The,
0: you know the best Such part a- about, about music? Yeah. Huh. You can turn it off. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I know, but I just mean like the culture of music is so associated with tattoos, especially hard, heavy metal music stuff that you're into, right?
0: But the, the issue is, and especially heavy music, it's extremely uh, bent on this like expressivist idea yeah, where creation is about expression of one's inner self. And that I just think is one, I think either totally wrong or mostly wrong. And then also just not at all how I experience uh, music and art generally. I don't have mm. that expressivist orientation whatsoever. So yeah, that mm. whole part of it's gone. And then you can have tattoos and not do it in an expressivist manner, certainly. Um, but then I just don't have any you know, any other desire to have them anyway. I think it's mm. it's awesome that some people do. And I think it's a really cool um, artistic choice, especially if done well, like yours are. Uh, but yeah, not for me.
1: I think you have a tattooed soul, Troy.
0: Yeah, man. That's that's what ta- it is. A tattooed soul, which I change on a whim.
1: That's right. That's why you <laughs> tattoo your soul, because it can constantly shift. Yeah.
0: That sounds like the worst uh, Stone Temple Pilots song.
1: Tattooed, tattooed Soul?
0: soul? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's like a total like
1: uh, emo hardcore band, right? Tattooed <laughs> Soul. Oh, my God. <laughs> Oh Jesus. So yeah, that was it. And I thought that was kind of weird that like I actually was not expecting to almost feel a little melancholy at the end of the tattoo experience because it it hurts and your arm is swollen and the good thing is, is my skin takes tattoos really well. Some people they get really red, they get really swollen, they bleed. I don't. But but nevertheless there's always some redness and some swelling. But um but you're at the end of this, you know, 7-hour session and I'm sitting there and I like he put the stencil on and I could tell that he was on the second to last one. And then when he was on the last little portion, I was kind of like, man, this sucks. And he's like, I'm I'm bummed that I'm done too. I'm like, I know. <laughs> and I was not expecting that. I kind of just thought it would be, you know what? I thought it was going to be transactional. And it ended up kind of being a care experience in a weird way, you know?
0: Do you huh. think the fact that it hurts adds some significance to it in the sense of it kind of ends up being kind of like battle scars? Hundred percent, like you earn this.
1: Hundred percent, yeah, hundred um, like percent. If it
0: didn't hurt, it wouldn't be anywhere near significant.
1: A hundred percent, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so my tattoo artist, his name is Jose Carlos Junior. He's a Brazilian dude. Um, and like I already told you, his Insta for people to go go follow him. He's fucking amazing, honestly. Um, he just got a tattoo on his neck recently. And, you know, he's got tattoos all over, but this is his first neck tattoo. And he said it hurts so bad and the experience was so shitty that it's actually put him off on his plans for his other tattoos for a little bit just because he needs to, like, regroup a little bit. But nevertheless, he's still doing it. So even him, a guy who's fully tatted up all over his body, he's a tattoo artist. He's not going to be one of those guys that's like, it doesn't hurt, man. Don't be a pussy kind of thing, right? (laughs) He's like, no, it fucking hurts, man. It does. And in certain places, it hurts more. But there's something weird about experiencing that pain where you might need to take a breath and you might not need to rush back into the battlefield, quote unquote, so quickly. But nevertheless, you're still ready for the next trench, you know?
0: Yeah, I get that. That's an important point. And we talked before on the podcast about uh, how interesting it is that there's certain experiences which – Pain is, is kind of cons- constitutive of the goodness of the experience. Mm. And that seems like an obvious example I'd never thought about before. But yeah, tattoos, if you remove the pain from the experience, it seems like they would actually lose significance rather than gain it.
1: Dude, my tattoo's not even healed. I'm literally on the third day right now. It's the morning <laughs> of the third day, and I'm already so thinking. So just,
0: you just rose
1: yeah exactly yeah maybe that's why i'm thinking about it um but i'm already thinking about what i want to do next like my tattoo is still you know it's a little dry and stiff and a tad sore in a couple of spots um and i'm already thinking like okay i can't wait maybe and i'm like maybe next month i can go in and get this. so like it's weird it is weird but um i love it i do i do i do
0: all right sweet thanks for detailing out that experience
1: yeah, man. All right. Let's go ahead and wrap up the episode there. Um, it's good to be back. It's good to do this. We will be Good consistent. to have you back, man. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, thank you, of course, to the listeners for listening. Um, Mubi, go get your free trial. Mubi.com slash Owls at Dawn. Patreon, uh, if you can support us, it'll really help us to be able to consistently produce content, better content, etc. moving forward. Patreon.com slash Owls at Dawn. You can email us, you can tweet at us, you can insta us, you can comment on shit on owlsatdawn.com, whatever. You know how to find us. And if you don't I'm pretty
0: sure you can just google owls.dawn at this point. We like that's, all our stuff comes up, right?
1: Exactly. Yeah. So. Well sweet man. I think that's pretty much it, unless there's anything else you gotta say.
0: Just one more thing I can think of, dude. What's that, man? Maybe I should get this tattoo. Das American.